Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper. And I'm Aaron Metzik. How's it going, Aaron? Meh, it's all right. Just How are meh? You? I'm good. I'm good. It's really hot out. I'm wearing a tank top. Doesn't happen a lot. But it's tank top weather. Even though it's September. And that was your official Useful Idiots weather report right there. Your one stop shop report. for all weather. Exactly. Yeah. Not, just, not just political analysis. Sometimes you get pop culture, meteorological center. Uh, we keep you informed. I feel bad for all the layoffs that are about to ensue in the weather rooms of news stations across the country once they realize that we're on top of it. Yeah. Their jobs are going to be redundant. They're, they are redundant. They just don't know it yet. Yeah. Let the experts handle it, though, over here mm-hmm. at Useful Idiots. And, we, mm-hmm. and the cool thing is we just narrow it down into like a clause, not even a sentence, just a clause. It's hot. It's exactly. hot. Breaking it's news. Yeah. Tank top weather. Yeah. 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 We really distill it. We crystallize it. Well, uh, we have an important announcement, which is that we are so grateful for all of our supporters. And you guys literally make this show happen. We couldn't do this show without your support because we do indeed live in the capitalist world system. So we have an announcement. If you are already a subscriber to Useful Idiot Substack, don't worry. You are good. Nothing's going to happen to your rate. If you haven't joined yet and you want to, now is the time to do it because October 1st, that's the 1st of October, we're going to be raising the subscription rate. Not by that much. It's still going to be very affordable. Wilson, let them know what's happening. Come on down, Wilson. So we joined Substack two and a half years ago, and apparently somehow things change in two and a half years. And so Substack, I met with them and they kind of laughed at us saying, your price is still this low. How are you getting away with this? So we said, okay, we'll raise them to the normal Substack rate, but we'll do it in one month so that everybody has a chance to get in, lock the prices forever at the low price. So you can do that now until October 1st. Act fast, guys, because these prices are insane. So currently the price right now is $5 a month or $40 a year, and the price will be rising to $6 a month and $60 a year. So if you sign up now, you can lock in that cheaper rate, the normal right. rate, when, uh, before October 1st. And after October 1st, it will be going up to $6 per month. So yeah. if you want to support the show, if you can, go sign up now. Sign up now. Yeah. Act fast. This is the moment. And you can sign up again at usefulidiotspodcast.com. Now that we've gotten that very important uh, announcement out of the way, let's get to the four basic food groups. Uh, Democrats suck. Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? So this week I have Democrats suck, and we already know that the Biden administration has made the questionable decision to send banned cluster bombs to Ukraine, Uh, but he's also decided to approve of the transfer of depleted uranium shells. Let's take a look at this news. Russia has called Washington's decision to send depleted uranium rounds to Ukraine a criminal act. The U.S. has pledged the armor-piercing tank rounds and its latest $1 billion military aid package. The highly dense radioactive material is effective against armor, but its use in war has been controversial. Some studies of its use by the U.S. and Iraq have linked the rounds to increased health risks. There you go. Uh, because cluster bombs aren't enough to send uh over there it's time to uh send over depleted uranium and as phil miller chief reporter for the independent news outlet declassified uk says on top of dealing with unexploded cluster munitions they're also going to have this huge hazard of depleted uranium to contend with as well so what's not the love 
you know, even that Al Jazeera report there puts it in a very benign way. They say that depleted uranium has been linked to increased health risks. Yeah. That was a term she used, I, I believe. Yeah. I mean, that's a really nice way of saying cancer and birth defects. I mean, right. you, we've seen the photos of the children born in Fallujah with all sorts of deformities. And the speculation there is that this is a result of the toxins that the U.S. used in Fallujah when attacking Fallujah, including de depleted uranium. So it's not just about health risks. It's about, you know, cancers and and birth defects, among other right. maladies. And uh, But don't worry, according to the Pentagon, everything is A-OK. -okay. Let's hear what a Pentagon spokesperson had to say. I would push back on the assertion from um, Russian officials. Here, the CDC has stated that there is no evidence that the uh, depleted uranium rounds cause cancer. The World Health Organization reports that there's been no increase of leukemia or other cancers um, and that have been established following any exposure to uranium or DU. And even the IAEA has stated unequivocally that there is no proven link between DU exposure and increases in cancers or significant health or environmental impacts. So I would push back on that. I would push back on that. Um, mm. And there are plenty of medical experts who would say otherwise. And again, the proof is in Fallujah, where you have seen serious issues arise in the people there. And they were the victims of, of depleted uranium rounds when the U.S. assaulted Fallujah during the Iraq war. So right. I would push back what the Pentagon spokesperson says that. Yeah. And in addition to your uh, comments, Aaron, the a paper from the World Health Organization uh, reports that someone who inhales small insoluble uranium particles may experience lung damage or lung cancer due to radiation and also may lead to poor kidney functioning. Um, so there is uh, research suggesting that link, and I'm not particularly uh, comforted by the words of a Pentagon spokesperson. <laughs> All right. For Republicans suck, let's stay on the issue of Ukraine. And Senator Mitt Romney would like to tell those who oppose th sending things like depleted uranium and other weapons why you're in the wrong. The single most important thing we can do to strengthen ourselves relative to China is to, is to see Russia defeated in Ukraine because they're allies and, uh, and Russia being weakened weakens their ally China. I mean, so, uh, and, and by the way, uh, being able to, to take an amount which equals what, about 5% of our military budget, about actually less than 5% of our military budget each year to help the Ukrainians is about, about the best national defense spending I think we've ever done. We're losing no lives in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are fighting heroically against Russia that has 1,500 nuclear weapons aimed at us. It's like, so we are, we're uh, diminishing and devastating the Russian military uh, for a, a very small amount of money relative to the, what we spend in the rest of defense. A weakened Russia is a good thing. It tells, it tells China to rethink uh, their a territorial ambition. Uh, it tells Russia, perhaps most importantly, that the, the Putin vision of, uh, of reestablishing the, the Russian empire and, and grabbing the old former Soviet republics, that that's not something that's going to work. It is very much in, in America's national interest, in our national interest to help Ukraine. And the best thing we can do for America is to see people who have nuclear weapons aimed at us getting weaker.
I mean, there's so much insanity there to respond to. So let's start with the issue of nuclear weapons. Does sacrificing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians and also killing Russians as well, does that reduce the amount of nuclear weapons that are aimed at the U.S.? Do any nuclear weapons get taken offline because Russians and Ukrainians die? No. If anything, the likelihood of those of those nuclear weapons being used increases if the U.S. and Russia are engaged in a proxy war. That's just basic logic. If you're belligerents, then you're going to increase the risk of conflict, in this case, including nuclear weapons. So he talks about all the nuclear weapons pointed at the U.S. None of them go away because people are dying inside of Russia and Ukraine. And he gives away the reason why, actually, he wants people to die there, uh, because he wants to send a message to China. Which, again, right. underscores that this has nothing to do with defending Ukraine. This is about serving U.S. hegemony. And somehow it's a proxy. It's a proxy war squared. We've seen this a bunch when people admit not only is this a proxy war between the United States and Russia, but that in itself is a proxy war for a war between the United States and China. Yeah. And like proxy messaging. It's like a it's some sort of weird way to send a message. Is there any other way? I mean, like, let's say you're obsessed with China. You want to send them a message. Is there any way you can think about doing it aside from killing sacrificing an entire country? And right you know, increasing the threat of nuclear war and all these other horrible things. There's got to be a different way. Right. And it's like, again, if you're a Ukrainian family, is this what you signed up for? Do you really want to sacrifice your loved ones' lives and your country's future so that the U.S. can send a message to China, two countries that, you know, aren't even there on Ukraine's borders? And then this notion that Russia wants to reestablish a Soviet empire We've gone through all this before. It's This is not about that. And in fact, in today's Thursday Throwdown uh, for this week, which you can get at usefulidiotspodcast.com, uh, we're going to hear a clip from Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, where he says actually that Russia went to war to prevent NATO enlargement on its borders. He even admitted that recently. Yeah, so, shocking admission, yeah. Yeah, so even other NATO uh cheerleaders are admitting that what Mitt Romney says is completely false. But anyway, it's a refreshing admission. I do appreciate when people are so candid about what's really going on here. But amazingly, it just doesn't make a dent in U.S. media. People don't start to ask the, the right questions. And again, yeah. this this message he puts out is taken as gospel, that all, all this is sensible. All these are sensible reasons to continue this this proxy war. Yeah. Really ridiculous. Aye. All right. Well, let's move on to... Uh... Isn't that weird? So let's go to the New York Post, which has a very important article about a three-legged bear named Tripod breaking into Florida home and guzzling three white claws. What a party animal. A three-legged bear who wanted to join in on the Labor Day weekend festivities was caught swiping white claws from a Floridian family's outdoor fridge. Shocking video shows the black bear, affectionately known in the neighborhood as Tripod, nonchalantly sauntering across the screened-in patio in Lake Mary, a city roughly 20 miles north of Orlando. So, uh, yeah, that's it. The He opened the door, and then uh, we see him sniffing out potential grub and settling on fish food that the family had left next to their fish tank, and uh, he grabs the beer. He took some White Claws. I, I would do that if I were him because I don't like beer. I prefer White Claws. I didn't know that they have bears in Florida. Yeah, I guess bears are everywhere. Yeah, I want to apologize to Florida and to bears for not realizing that you were one. I um, 
that shows my ignorance. Right. For invisible, you were invisibilizing them, at least in Florida. Yeah. Florida's yeah. bears. Yes. I was invisibilizing Florida's bears and I apologize. Yeah. So you're, yeah, well, that's an, isn't that weird? And isn't that a teachable moment where Aaron Mate apologizes to bears worldwide and specifically in Florida? We see you. You are seen. <laughs> okay. First, that terrible. A steady supply of terribles can always be found from the mouths of corporate CEOs who, you know, can sometimes be the most out of touch people in the world. And a guy named Tim Gurner, who is head of something called the Gurner Group, and speaking at a recent summit, he had some complaints about the nation's workers. I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have, people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance. <laughs> so we have to kill the attitude of people who are workers who are arrogant because they don't want to like break their backs for CEOs like him. Right. We need to see pain in the economy uh, and we need unemployment to rise. These, this is the wisdom of a Australian real estate multimillionaire, who, by the way, got his start uh, with help from his grandfather, with right. a, you know, a hefty loan from his grandfather. Right. To buy a, a, a workout gym. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's maybe a good attitude for a workout gym, right? You know, don't be lazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, pain, uh, no, pain, no pain, no gain. No pain. Em embrace, embrace the pain. Fair enough. Right. Like, Say what you want in your workout gym, but when it comes to economic advice to workers, right. when you're a multimillionaire, no, sorry, buddy. Right, maybe stick to workout platitudes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's also weird he doesn't have a Wikipedia. Well, maybe he will now after yeah. this one because this went viral and deserved. Yeah, it did so. go viral. Yeah. All righty. Well, that those were your four basic food groups. Uh, I'm hungry just hearing all that with all that talk about working out, but uh, I'm satisfied by the four basic food groups. So we have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking to Amanda Yee, who is a writer, editor of Liberation News, and the host of the podcast Radio Free Amanda. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you have a great article on the uh, renewal of the State Department's ban on the use of U.S. passports for travel to North Korea. Can you tell us about this ban and its significance? This was a travel ban that was put in place by Trump in 2017, um, and it's been renewed annually ever since. So a lot of people don't know this, but before 2017, 
people in the United States could travel to North Korea. And actually, a lot of Korean organizations in the States would organize delegations there. So uh, it was put in place by Trump, and then Biden has um, renewed it annually ever since. And the travel ban lasts one year. It expires at the end of August every year, at which point the administration in place decides whether or not to lift it or extend it for like the next year. And despite his own campaign promise in 2020 to reunite Korean-Americans in Korea who had been separated for decades um, because of the uh, Korean War and this travel ban, Biden has backed out on that promise and he's renewed the ban every year he's been in office. So the travel ban, um, it's extremely strict, right? While there are travel restrictions in place for countries like Cuba for U.S. passport holders, um, in the case of Cuba, you can still go as long as you meet certain requirements um, under a certain set of conditions. Uh, In contrast, no U.S. passport holder can travel to North Korea. If you want to travel to North Korea, you have to apply for a special validation passport. Um, and those are handed out by the State Department in like very, very rare exceptional circumstances. And they really only go to professional journalists or uh, like people who work for the Red Cross. Um, in terms of its implications, this ban separates as many as 100,000 Koreans in the U.S. from visiting their families in North Korea. Um, So in late July of this year, there were a number of Korean organizations that rallied in Washington, D.C. on the 70th anniversary of the uh, signing of the Armistice Agreement, which brought an end to the fighting in the Korean War. And during their time in D.C., they delivered a thousand postcards um, to the State Department, as well as an open letter calling for the lifting of the travel ban. So, you know, there is widespread opposition to this travel ban uh, from Korean Americans in the U.S. But despite that, the administration renews this ban every year. Just another example of Joe Biden filling one promise, which is made, which was made behind closed doors to donors, which is that nothing would fundamentally change. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And your article, uh, it's really great, and I highly recommend it. Uh, makes a bunch of important points, but it also includes interviews um, that you had with Korean Americans about how this is impacting them. Can you share some of uh, what you learned through talking to these people? Yeah. Um, so in the article, I talked to uh, an activist named Kate Chim, and, um, you know, her family was separate. She was born in Korea and she moved to the States at the age of 18. Um, but a lot of her relatives and cousins lived uh, they're from North Korea. And before 2017, before the implementation of this travel ban, uh, she was able to freely go and visit her relatives. Um, but since 2017, she hasn't been able to. So she's completely prohibited from seeing her family in North Korea. Um, but what's remarkable about her story is that, you know, like things weren't always this way. Um, she told me about uh, her grandmother. Her grandmother was separated from her son, so Kate's uncle, during the Korean War. And so they had been separated for decades. And uh, Kate's grandmother lived in the South 
Um, and for decades, she was trying to track down her oldest son. Um, but because of political tensions between North and South at the time, uh, she was she had a really difficult time doing that in South Korea. And so at the age of 65, she moved to the States and she was extremely determined to find her long lost son. And she was so hopeful and determined that she actually got a job at a factory when she moved to the States at the age of 65, um, just so she could afford to bring back gifts to her son, like when she when he was finally found. Right. So in the States, um, she and her family were able to track down their long lost son. And this was in the 80s, right? So long before the travel ban. Um, and they tracked him down in North Korea. And, you know, her grandmother was in her 60s at this time. And she was able to, like, be reunited with her long lost son after after decades, you know? And not only was she able to be reunited with her son, she also met, you know, this entire side of her family that she had not been able to meet before. Um, and she would return to North Korea again um, to like visit her family again and also to attend her like grandson's wedding. So this was like back in the 80s, um, long before the travel ban was set in place. Um, and her grandmother died about 10 years ago. But if she if she were alive today, you know, like she obviously wouldn't be able to um, to visit her family because of the ban. And, you know, it, it's not it's not unique, you know. Um, there are like as many as 100,000 Korean Americans who are entirely prohibited from seeing their family. It's a really draconian ban. And you write the travel ban for the U.S. then is another weapon of war. So what do you mean mm -hmm. by that? Yeah, so the Korean War never ended, right? Um there was the signing of the Armistice Agreement in 1953 that brought an end to the fighting, but it didn't bring an end to the war. Because an Armistice Agreement, it's not, it's not a peace agreement, right? It's only a ceasefire. So the U.S., along with the South, it remained suspended in this like perpetual state of war with the North. And to this day, the U.S. still refuses to sign a peace treaty. Um, so... The travel ban by itself, it seems like a very small thing uh, it, within the larger picture, but it's another weapon of war to like kind of isolate, uh, you know, Koreans from each other, North Koreans from South Koreans, Koreans in the U.S. from seeing uh, their families in the North. And it's meant to like further stoke tensions between North and South and further turn Koreans against each other, right? I think it's a tragedy that the Korean War continues to this day and people don't really know about it. And it's also a tragedy that the Korean War is known as the Forgotten War um, because it's not forgotten in Korea and it's not forgotten among like the many Koreans in the U.S. who remain separated from their families in, in the North. And I think the U.S. would rather us forget it because its involvement in that war was just genocide, right? There's no way around it. Like the U.S. dropped over 600,000 tons of bombs over the Korean Peninsula in just over three years of that war. Um, like they completely leveled the North. They destroyed like 90% of its cities and villages and they killed like 20% of the population. So the fact that North Korea was like able to rebuild um, 
I mean, I think that's just a miracle in and of itself. And, you know, in just the three years of fighting of the Korean War between 1950 and 1953, the U.S. just like committed atrocity after atrocity, like they massacred civilians, they massacred refugees who were trying to flee the fighting. And even after the armistice was signed, the South still remains like occupied by the U.S., right? Every year, the South Korea hosts these joint military exercises with the U.S. military where they simulate invasion of the North. And it's basically practice for regime change. And um, I mean, like in general, the U.S. constantly ratchets up tensions between North and South. So this, that's what I mean when this travel ban is really another weapon of war. It's part, of, it's part of this broader strategy meant to further isolate the North and inflame tensions on both sides of the Korean Peninsula. Because really right now, what the, what the US is trying to do is trying, it's trying to corral South, South Korea in, into its like Indo-Pacific uh, alliance against China. So these strategies that include the travel ban, um, it's trying to corral South Korea as a regional ally of the U.S. against uh, what the U.S. is preparing for, which is major power conflict with China. I just want to underscore what you said about the uh, U.S. bombing of North Korea in the 1950s, in the early 1950s. Uh, more bombs on North Korea than the U.S. dropped on the entire Pacific theater Mm -hmm. in the Second World War. And Curtis LeMay, who was an Air Force general, he said this, quote, over a period of three years or so, we killed off 20% of the population. And he goes on to say, the U.S. bombed, quote, everything that moved in North Korea, every brick standing on top of another, unquote. And after they ran out of targets to bomb in the cities, they also bombed hydroelectric and irrigation dams and farm and which then flooded farmland and destroyed crops. So like the devastation is unfathomable, but yet if you were to poll people here in the US if they knew that history, I mean I it would be a very, very low digit. It's just it's just it's just mm -hmm. not known at all. Um, but what is widely known about North Korea are these like fantastical tales that we get from so-called defectors like, what's her name, Naomi Park? Or sorry, Yomi Yomi Park, yeah. Yomi Park, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she's appeared in a bunch of media outlets and now she's widely mocked for being, uh, just uh, telling these outlandish tales about people forced to like push trains or eat rats. I mean, people make fun of that. Mm -hmm. But but you've pointed out before that really, what which as ludicrous as she sounds, it's not that far off from the normal uh, claims we get about North Korea from our so-called re respectable establishment media outlets. Right. Um, and this is another, this brings up another important purpose that the travel ban serves, right? Um, the travel ban prevents not just North Korean or Koreans in the U.S. from seeing their family members in North Korea, but it prohibits any pass U.S. passport holder from visiting North Korea and seeing uh, what it's like for themselves. So, you know, like every person that I've talked to who was able to uh, travel to North Korea before 2017, I mean, they will tell you that North Korea is nothing like uh, what you see of it in the news. Um, you know, the people they met there, they were very warm. They were friendly, um, friendly even to Americans who are, you know, taught to hate them, right? 
Um, and it's that's like really the crucial function um, that this travel ban serves because they're, North Korea is the target of a huge disinformation propaganda campaign. Um, a lot of the stories about North Korea in corporate media rely on these total caricatures of the Kim family as well as um, the depiction that North Koreans are brainwashed, brainwashed masses, right? And you can really say anything about North Korea, like the most absurd lie, the most absurd thing you can imagine. And people would believe it, right? Like people actually believe that in North Korea, you're executed for having the wrong haircut. And a lot of these stories come from unverified sources, or they come from Radio Free Asia, which is, you know, like a U.S.-funded anti-communist propaganda arm of the U.S. government, right? It was set up during the Cold War for explicitly that purpose. Um, and so a lot of these stories also come from um, North Korean defectors who are incentivized financially um, and oftentimes pressured to grossly exaggerate or even lie um, because they're part of this industry uh, in the U.S. that pays for um, defector stories, uh, stories about the human rights abuses in North Korea, um, because the U.S. government can then use these to justify its inhumane sanctions against, against North Korea. So you have this industry of defectors who are financially incentivized to make up the most grossly exaggerated stories to get an interview. And they're all fighting for the most absurd story to get that interview. Um, and that's how you get people like Yunmi Park who can go on Joe Rogan and claim you know, that North Koreans have no food to eat, so they're forced to eat rats, or that the trains never work in North Korea because there is no electricity. So people in North Korea have to like manually push the trains to their destinations, or that North Koreans don't have a word for love, so they don't know what love is. Um, but as I said, you know, the, the propaganda campaign against North Korea um, and the travel ban, they go hand in hand and they complement one another um, because the U.S. government uses the propaganda to justify the travel ban, right? And the travel ban kind of holds in place the propaganda because then people can't really see what the country and the people are like for themselves. Um, it, it prevents any kind of like cultural exchange between Americans and North Koreans, um, which is really important in kind of chipping away at that propaganda and actually seeing people in North Korea as human. Right. It's similar to what happens in Cuba, right? Why, why they mm -hmm. can try to restrict travel there. Um, something we constantly hear uh, about North Korea from the same politicians that portrays them as kind of a caricature is, oh, why won't they just uh, abandon their nuclear program? Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, What is your response to, and get get rid of their nuclear weapons. What's your response to that demand? Libya, I, I point them to Libya. No, I know. So obviously no, this is a rhetorical sure. question and I'm asking this because <laughs> I'm at, full, full, spoiler alert. I'm asking you this because I've heard you make the, a very important uh, point about this. So it's a setup. Sorry, my bad. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think we would all really like to live in a world without nuclear weapons, right? Um, but I also think it's important to understand that North Korea's nuclear weapons are defensive. 
And in order, if we want North Korea to give up its nuclear arsenal, then we have to pressure the U.S. to give up its nuclear arsenal as well, because the U.S. and U.S. imperialism is the primary obstacle uh, to peace. It's it's the instigator. It's been the primary instigator in uh, the Korean War and the continuation of it in the decades since, right? North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons are defensive. And, you know, like people in North Korea, they really believe that if it weren't for their nuclear weapons, they would have gone the way of, you know, Libya, as Aaron said, or Iraq. Like they would have been invaded by the U.S. a long time ago and turned into, you know, like a resource colony or something like that. So, yeah, it's purely defensive. And, you know, I would love to live in a world without nuclear weapons. But um, in order for that to happen, we have to pressure the U.S. to you know, like, give up its own nuclear weapons first. You write and speak a lot about the new Cold War with China that's being launched basically by the United States. You have a really important article on Farah. What, uh, can can you talk about that article that you wrote and also how the United States uh, is ratcheting up its war on China? Yeah, so FARA is a really important piece of legislation that's basically being used as it's the political weapon of choice right now in the new Cold War. Um, I'm and sorry, I, sorry, and I and that's the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Yeah, yeah, the uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act or FARA, and it's basically a law that states any. Um, individual or entity that represents the interests of a foreign government that they have to register with the Department of Justice. Um, it's a public disclosure statute that states if you're working on behalf of the interests of a foreign government, um, you have to register with the DOJ and peri- periodically disclose your activities um, and disclose any finances involved. Um, if you don't do that, then you can be indicted and charged and prosecuted. Um, and you know the punishment for that like tens of thousands of dollars and possibly, you know, prison time. Um, So basically, it's like get into the technicalities of it. Uh, There are like four covered activities that you can be indicted under FARA for. So soliciting money, the first is soliciting money or anything of value on behalf of or the interests of, you know, this foreign government. Um, the second one is representing the interests of a foreign principal before any agency or official of the government of the U.S. Um, the third one is engaging in you know, political activities for or in the interests of a foreign principal. That's the foreign government. And then the fourth is acting as like a public relations council or information service employee um, or political consultant for or in the interests of a foreign principal. So it's the third one that's really broad and like the most open to interpretation. So when they're saying political activities, that could really mean anything. And it's not limited to just political lobbying. Um, There doesn't even have to be any kind of finances or money involved. It just means engaging in any kind of activity in the eyes of the U.S. government, which would promote the interests of a foreign government and try and in their eyes, try to influence U.S. policy or public opinion around those interests. So, for instance, um, for example, if there was like a Canadian NGO and there were representatives of an American NGO that met with the Canadian representatives of the Canadian NGO, and they discussed how to advocate for like U.S. policy kind of confronting the opioid crisis in the U.S. 
technically the Americans, um, the American reps from the American NGO could be indicted under FARA because they could be seen as trying to um, advance the interests of the Canadian government. Um, so FARA, um, it's really easily uh, weaponized politically and um, it's been used against political activists who have spoken out against U.S. policy. And that's how it's been used historically, and that's how it's been used today. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois was prosecuted under FARA in 1951. Um, what he was doing was he was petitioning against nuclear weapons. And so the U.S. government, you know, tried to indict him under FARA and said he was an agent of the Soviet Union because, you know, he was advocating against the use of these nuclear weapons. And so FARA is really dangerous in this moment of Red Scare paranoia, where, for instance, in the context of the Ukraine war, anything that could remotely challenge U.S. involvement in that war is automatically smeared as Putin propaganda, right? And it has been enforced in that way recently. Um, one example is that um, the members of the African Socialist People's Party have been indicted under FARA for promoting the interests of Russia because uh, they have been very vocal against U.S. involvement uh, in the Ukraine war and the U.S. constantly sending weapons uh, to those in the Ukraine war. Um, you know, the specific acts that they're accused of committing as violations of FARA, including, um, they include like attending an international conference in Russia, publishing a petition to the UN on the crime of genocide against African people in the US, and also just like in general, publishing and speaking or publishing about and speaking in support of the Russian government. So you can see how FARA is so can so easily be weaponized because there doesn't have to be any finances involved. You can just uh, speak out against foreign policy and they will find a way to uh, indict you under FARA. Um, in the Cold War against China, it's also been weaponized politically to target organizers um, who have been uh, like, who have voiced their opposition um, to U.S. aggression against China. Uh, one example of this is Henry Liang, who's this 63-year-old hotel worker in Boston. Um, and he's this activist that's known within Boston's Chinese-American community. Um, and he was indicted under FARA for exactly this reason. The DOJ is trying to say that he's a foreign agent because he's been organizing against this new Cold War. Um, and the evidence that they cited is that, you know, Henry Liang, he just happens to be uh, friends with someone who works at the Chinese consulate. And so he and his friends, he and his friend would exchange uh, text messages over WeChat. And the DOJ is trying to say that he's a foreign agent of China just because he communicates with someone who just happens to work for the Chinese consulate. Um, another example was of this was that a few weeks ago, the New York Times ran this article smearing anti-war organizations like No Cold War and Cold wow. Pink as Chinese influence ops. And so um, shortly after that, Marco Rubio wrote this open letter to the Department of Justice, um, pretty much demanding that these groups be investigated under FARA. So FARA is incredibly broad in scope, but you know, selectively enforced, and who does and doesn't count as a foreign agent, you know, is entirely political. 
That New York Times piece was amazing because basically, without directly stating it, they're basically begging the government to investigate those groups you mentioned, Code Pink, the People's Forum, as Chinese assets. But they have no evidence at all of their claim because it's a complete smear. But basically, that was an effort to try to – they strongly suggest without directly outright begging for it that they want an investigation of these groups, even though they have no evidence. And Marco Rubio, as you said, picked up on it and called for this investigation. And that was just – it was amazing to see just how bipartisan this is, like this liberal New York Times newspaper and this right-wing Republican senator joining forces – to go after left-wing groups like peace activists mm-hmm. because they oppose a cold war with uh, China. And we're seeing this more and more now, like the the whole Russiagate playbook of accusing, you know, Russia of sowing chaos through its sophisticated disinformation apparatus. We're now seeing this repurposed for China as well. It's happening more and more frequently. So this, for example, is a recent headline in the New York Times. China sows disinformation about Hawaii fires using new techniques. And basically, I don't know how many stories of this we've seen in the last, whatever, seven, eight years, or basically whatever issue there is going on in the country, you just take the bad guy country and claim that they're exploiting it with their sophisticated propaganda campaign. Like recent examples I can think of also include the East Palestine train disaster. Mm-hmm. And then there was a story saying that Russia was manipulating Americans through social mm-hmm. media into believing that somehow the U.S. government was negligent in that. Imagine thinking that. And basically it serves this dual playbook of like distracting attention from you know the government's failings and failing its own people while also feeling this idea that these bad guy countries are so powerful that they can manipulate malleable Americans into you know following whatever their line is. And the vehicles for this are the top establishment news outlets in the country. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiotspodcast.com. That was a great interview. Really enjoyed talking to Amanda. And if you want to hear more from Amanda, uh, she writes at liberationnews.org and is on Twitter at cat content only. So check out Amanda E there. Really interesting conversation, and it's a neglected topic. I mean, Korea being the forgotten war, it kind of speaks for itself. It's a forgotten war or a war that many people here don't learn about. So, And her stuff on China is great, too. Absolutely. And uh, as the Cold War with China heats up, we'll be wanting to check back in and learn more about what's going on because yeah. it's hard to keep up with all these different enemies. I know. But you know, but, you so, know many so many enemies. But I think that just goes back to our original claim about how we are not just political analysis, pop culture news, but weather. Talking about the Cold War, talking about the warm weather and the Cold War. The war is getting pretty cold out there. Exactly. It's all meteorological. Yeah. Yeah, that's the title. So bundle up with some information. Yeah, that's good. Bundle up. Yeah. Bundle up by joining our Substack at usefulidiotspodcast.com. And make sure you do that to hear the rest of Amanda's interview and act fast because remember, it's $5 a month now. Before you know it, it'll be $6 a month. And again, don't fret people, OGs who've been here since the start. The price will not be raised for you. You are locked in. You are locked in, yeah, in the best way. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much to all of our supporters who subscribe to the podcast and keep us going. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. 
Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 